Hey, Rachel, what are Dr. Nemesis's powers? You mean aside from being absolutely delightful? Well, Miles, his mutation is superior intellect, but he's basically a science hero. Tiny cameras for eyes, using ambiguous chemicals to extend his lifespan by decades, that sort of thing. Decades? Wait, how old is he? Let's see, um, 108. He was born in, in 1906. Wasn't Namor born in 1915, though? Oh, yeah. The first mutant stuff is, as far as I can tell, basically Atlantean propaganda. Nemesis isn't actually technically the first mutant either, though. There were a handful of Victorian-era ones, and of course there's Apocalypse. So he's been around for most of the Marvel Universe. Oh, totally. He helped build the first human torch, you know, the robot one. And then he was a Nazi for a while, but he got better. Oh, okay. Well, when did he join the X-Men? In 2009, Beast recruited him for X-Club, which was the science team that was trying to figure out how to keep mutants from going extinct after decimation. How'd that go? And Nemesis was the oldest living mutant they had much information on, so they decided the logical thing to do was travel back in time to get DNA samples from his parents, which led to his father being killed by a proto-sentinel before Nemesis could be born. Ouch. That sounds like a time paradox. How'd he survive? Well, his mom was already pregnant. Okay. And he stuck around for long enough to deliver himself. What?! I'm Rachel Edidin. I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to the 18th episode of Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, outs, and retcons of our very favorite superhero soap opera. This week, we're starting video reviews of current comics. And because we're starting this week, we missed by a week getting to talk about one of our favorite recent titles. Cyclops number three, which is the last issue that Russell Dowderman's going to be doing the art on just came out. And it is one of the best single issues I've read since the pizza dog issue of Hawkeye. We've been talking about how amazing this series is since it started. And every issue so far has been the best issue to come out. But this one sets a bar that... I'm not going to say that I'll be completely shocked if Four Tops it, but this one is just leaps and bounds. It is phenomenally good. And you actually uh, bought a page from that issue, right? I did. I basically read it and then immediately emailed Russell Otterman. I knew I wanted to get a page from his run on the series. I looked through one and two. There were a lot of really good pages, but none were sort of the one I wanted because I, I wanted to get a page that was really representative of what I felt like was the best part of Dotterman's work and what really defined it. There's a lot of cool stuff in one and two. There's a lot of space battles. There's a lot of cool cosmic stuff. Where I think Dotterman really excels as an artist and the main strength of his and Rucka's run is the dynamism and intensity and just visual engagement he's able to get in quiet moments. Yeah, I would agree. And I would also listen to your opinion whether I agreed or not. I mean, you are the expert on these things. You're still (laughs) wearing that Cyclops visor. Are you ever going to take that off? Do you shower with that thing? Maybe. So speaking of stories that take place in space, we actually just saw Guardians of the Galaxy last night. God damn, that is a fun freaking movie. It is ridiculous. How would you describe it, Rachel? I think fun is a good word for it. It is fully committed to being just sort of old school, retro feel, high action, high intensity space opera. It's extremely funny. I've been describing it as Andy Dwyer space guy, which it basically (laughs) is. You know, it's not a perfect movie, but I don't care because it is just really goddamn enjoyable. Yeah, I, I really enjoy that it just does not give a shit. It's like, okay, Rocket Raccoon and Groot the Tree Guy are two of our main characters. Why the hell not? Here's like an entire planet that we really have no build up to in the cinematic universe. And you just have to accept that there's a space planet here and a space planet there. And they've been at war, whatever. You just go with it. It just throws you into space epic of ridiculousness and doesn't really give you any context and doesn't care. And that's perfect. That's exactly what it should do. And, you know, I've heard in some of the reviews that people feel like the fight scenes are too long and that it's the movie equivalent of decompressed storytelling. Again, I kind of don't care because they're really cool and I'm really fine with keeping watching them for a long time. It's a little Pacific Rimmy in a way and that you 
Yeah, it's it's kind of Pacific Rimmy. Does that sound like a sex act? Anyway, mm. it's a little Pacific Rimmy in a way, in that the movie just knows exactly what it wants to be, and it just does it, and it doesn't care whether you like it or not, because it's going in its own direction, and it knows it's awesome. We recommend the hell out of it. Okay, so today's episode, speaking of things that are ridiculous... Draculas! Yeah, so yeah. So many Draculas! X-Men, we've talked about how, you know, there's the central mutant metaphor, and I think we would both agree that that's the most important part of X-Men, like, objectively, but there's also a lot of other stuff. We talked about space pirates last time. Actually, we talk about space pirates at every opportunity. Because space pirates, come on. And here is one of the things X-Men does more rarely, which is, hey, let's just do some classic horror. Well, well the first story we're talking about. This is also one of the earlier connections we've seen to the sort of more mystical end of Marvel. We've touched on that before, but this goes in deep, and that's going to be something we're going to be coming back to and coming back to in the next few weeks as well. And one thing it also does, which is something I wish more comics would do, which is it says, hey, what characters are public domain? Dracula is public domain. Let's just do whatever the hell we want with him. Let's reference Bram Stoker's Dracula. Let's reference the old movies, and let's just take the parts we like, and then just throw them into X-Men and see what happens. Yeah, I have no actual data to back this up, but I would guess that Dracula has probably appeared in more different comics titles than any other single character, just based on the fact that he's, you know, he's public domain, he's iconic, and you can really drop him into pretty much any genre. He's distinctive, but he's flexible because part of, you know, part of the point of him is that he's somewhat timeless. Oh, that reminds me, Dracula stopped by yesterday while you were out. He dropped off the, the Sandman trades he borrowed. So you're saying he's not still locked in a basement in, in Blue Water Publishing, narrating documentary comics about Stephanie Meyer? The guy's got to have hobbies. Aw, poor Dracula. Okay, so we are starting out with Uncanny X-Men number 159. This is a story called Night Screams, which also seems like it should be on the cover of some 1980s album with a lot of neon. And one of the interesting things about this issue is the artist. Oh, yeah. This is a guy who we haven't seen in X-Men before, but who is about to get extremely important and about to become a really definitive part of the X-Universe and the landscape of superhero comics in general. And this is Bill Sienkiewicz. Bill Sienkiewicz is also known for having one of the most difficult-to-pronounce last names in the industry. In New Mutants, he's got this style that just nothing else really looks like. It's very sketchy and painty and almost chaotic, and uh, the Demon Bear saga is the story he's probably best known for, but he also uh, is known for creating the, the visual look of the character of Warlock. This is a weird intro to Sienkiewicz, because he's very much doing Marvel House style for the vast majority of this issue, and he's okay at it. He's doing it at a professional level of quality. There's nothing particularly distinctive about it, but there's one panel where you start to see a hint of what his art is going to become, and it's amazing. Yeah, yeah, we'll get to this later, but Storm sort of wakes up in this dreamlike fugue, and all of a sudden, it's exactly the Sienkiewicz that we've come to know and love. God, if I had to choose a single favorite artist from superhero comics, I mean, Bill Sienkiewicz is one I just keep coming back to because his work is so atmospheric and so distinctive and so well-suited to the stories he's drawing in New Mutants. Like, it's one of those sort of perfect alchemy moments. Totally. So uh, let's talk about where we are when this issue starts. We're in New York. Jean Grey used to be the roommate of Misty Knight, who you may remember as a fucking badass. She's got a robot arm, and she's sort of a private investigator, and she hangs out with Colleen Wing and Power Man and Iron Fist. And she definitely punches a shark in the face with that robot arm once. If you have a robot arm, you have a moral obligation to punch sharks. So the X-Men just show up at the apartment, all of a sudden there's this lady there, and she's like, who the hell are you guys? And they're like, who the hell are you? And it turns out she is Harmony Young. Harmony Young is a model and socialite. She is Misty's post-Jean roommate, since Jean is dead at the time. She briefly dated Power Man, and she was an occasionally recurring character in Heroes for Hire. 
And this is the last we'll see of her for a while. They decide to hang out here for a little while. Wolverine's like, I don't care you are. I'm getting a beer in, in what's typical Wolverine fashion. Uh, Kitty goes off to meet up with her parents and Storm goes with her to drop her off and then heads out and doesn't make it back home. She's later found. I think the X-Men uh, find her when she's in the hospital, right? But I want to go back a step and say that this is a pretty damn classic Dracula story. With Dracula stuff, you see Dracula adjusting to the modern era stories and different twists. This is a very straight-played riff on Dracula, on Bram Stoker's Dracula. The novel Dracula by Bram Stoker, not the movie Bram Stoker's Dracula, which is a different riff on that same novel. Um, and, and remember, we've talked before about relatively noble villains always falling for Storm, and that being very much a thing. And this is, this is also very much in line with that. Oh, yeah. Storm gets attacked by a mysterious mugger and ends up in the hospital. The X-Men find her there, and they start to worry. I mean, partially because, holy shit, Storm just had her throat slashed or something? That That's not good. But also because they're worried that if she stays in the hospital for very long, they will realize that she has mutant blood, and then, you know, the X-Men's covers will be compromised, and people don't like mutants, so that's no good. The hospital mentions that they've found something strange in her blood, and I assumed when I read that first line that it was, it was a vampire thing. But no, it's that mutants have distinct blood types, which is one of those things that's going to keep coming back to haunt us in the comics, and it's just wildly, wildly inconsistent. So okay. they've, they've got different blood types, but they can transfuse blood to and from humans without complications. And, and I want to talk a little bit more about mutant blood here. So you might have heard us reference the infamous Chuck Austin run of X-Men from the, the 2000s era. Two things we learn in the Chuck Austin run of X-Men. Uh, one, mutants can't get HIV or something because for some reason. Stuff. But also that Angel, who's, you know, he's a character that X-Men has really struggled to figure out what to do with over the years. He has blood that can heal you of any disease because he's an actual angel, according to the story. They don't talk kind much of. about that anymore. They do not, however, have radioactive blood in the vein of Spider-Man. That's, that's truly unfortunate. Oh, God, that was a bad pun. I totally didn't mean to do that. The vein of Spider-Man. Yeah. Yes, oh, vampire God episode. Damn it. Uh, so anyway, Storm, you know, she recovers very quickly, and the X-Men are like, cool, and she says, I want to get out of the hospital. But, but she's starting to get weaker and weaker, and she's having these dreams of a mysterious stranger for whom she longs. And if this sounds familiar, it should, because, yeah, Dracula. Again, this is a really vanilla, cut-and-dried Dracula story. It's almost a retelling in parts. I mean, a lot of the scenes line up in a, in a really parallel fashion. Dracula Draculing along. Now, this version of Dracula, he, he's a lot like the version in the book, the sort of more romantic aspect of that version, because obviously he sort of takes different personalities over the course of the book. And he is one hell of a smooth operator. Like, he is a classy vampire. The first thing he does when he starts to visit Storm at night is give her a freaking monogrammed scarf to cover the bite marks with a little gothic D on it. Is this like your boyfriend giving you his letter jacket in high school or something? I want to point out the exceptional restraint we are exercising by not making a gives her the D joke here. Note our restraint. That's important. Be grateful. So you guys know I love a good supervillain monologue, and Dracula, when you get down to it, is kind of the ultimate supervillain. I mean, he's sympathetic, but he's also super evil, and he's very powerful and very sure of himself. And he's got the sexy voice. Yeah. Come to me, woman. Yield to my dread embrace. Join your blood and life and soul to mine as, with a kiss, I make you the bride of the Prince of Darkness, Dracula. I love that he says his own name at the end, like, just in case she's not sure who it is. Uh, the first person to figure out what's going on as Storm is getting weaker and weaker is actually Kitty. It's not specifically stated that she's super familiar with vampire myths, but once she realizes what's going on, she dresses like the most stereotypical freaking Van Helsing knockoff ever. Oh, you ever. know she's totally into that. Were Anne Rice books out by now? In the early 80s? I, I don't, I don't know. know. But you know she's got it. She's got like a copy of Dracula that she's read a million times because it's like the sex 
sexiest thing she could find when she was like 11 or 12. But yeah, she shows up with, you know, the, the full shebang, like the hammer, the stake, the Van Helsing hat, which I guess is a part of cross, it. A huge cross, despite the fact that she's Jewish, which comes back and bites her in the ass later, because it turns out that the thing with holy symbols is you have to actually believe in them. This is actually a really cool thing, and I, I like that this issue um, addresses that kind of faith. Like, a lot of modern superhero comics really wouldn't, and what this also means is because Dracula is burned, or is, like, repelled by the Star of David that she's wearing, that also implies that Kitty actually is not just a Jew by culture, but by belief and possibly practice as well. She's not particularly orthodox, but she's she is observant. A storm runs away when Kitty confronts her, and uh, the X-Men, they're, they're skeptical, but Nightcrawler actually takes her seriously, and I love this. He says, in my homeland, Bavaria, we have learned from bitter experience not to take vampires, especially Dracula, lightly. Well then! Oh yeah, if you're living in Bavaria, like, you know, watch out for vampires. You it's know, like- I want to point out, too, that this is the homeland that drove him out with pitchforks and torches. I would say that there is a lot that his homeland should maybe learn to take a little more lightly. Seriously, Bavarian Nightcrawler's a great dude. We're Dracula, getting hate mail for this. Are we? Are the angry Bavarians? I don't know. So they go and they go to Rescue Storm and there's a big vampire fight with Dracula. That's basically the climax of the issue. It's a single issue story, which I'd love to see more of these days. But it's actually really cool the, w- the way Kitty gets Storm back. Yeah, so Kitty goes and faces Storm and basically says, I believe you're still in there. You wouldn't kill me. Be true to yourself. And Dracula then basically frees her because she is so rad. She goes and confronts Dracula and is like, hell no. And Dracula's like, well, I could mind control you, but you're too cool for that. I got, I got this. I knew from the moment I tasted your blood that you were a woman of rare beauty, rare courage, rare strength. Those qualities attracted me to you. Now, they have defeated me. Do you think there's a support group? Do you think he and Dr. Doom go and get drinks on the weekends and just sort of have long, sad conversations about the one who got away? Yeah, them and, like, Archon from that old X-Men annual and, like, that blue dude from the Extreme X-Men run. Forge when he's having a really bad week. He was a supervillain for a while. Bishop, too, for that Callisto. matter. <laughs> um, Storm has the willpower to get away in this, but in the Mutant X universe, this is Earth-1298, this story went down a little differently. Dracula fully transforms Storm into a vampire. She stays a good guy. She ends up keeping Kitty and Forge as semi-consensual food sources. The best part of this is that she keeps superheroing, but she does it under the name Bloodstorm, which is maybe the most 90s superhero name of all time. Wait, wait, wait. So your name is Storm and you become a vampire and all of a sudden you're Bloodstorm? Like you just, yeah. you just tack on what you like You are to what eat? you eat. Okay, so like a vegetarian Storm, would she just be Carrot Storm? How would this work? I, I think she would definitely be Carrot Storm. I want to see that superhero costume. Carrot Storm. I want to see Jim Lee design it. So many pouches. Okay, so yeah, uh, Dracula's actually been back since then. Um, a little bit after this, we're not going to go into detail on this issue, An Uncanny X-Men Annual number 6 by the same creative team, uh, we see Dracula come back, and the X-Men fight him again, and Storm gets, you know, vamped again, and they actually team up with Rachel Van Helsing from the old Tomb of Dracula comic. Oh yeah, Tomb of Dracula. Yes, yeah, so Dracula's been around in the Marvel Universe for a while. This isn't his first appearance there. He mainly shows up in, yeah, again, Tomb of Dracula. Tomb of Dracula was awesome. So I, I, Tomb of Dracula is the source of a fellow who you are probably more familiar with through the movies, Blade. Yes, and it's also just a great comic in its own right. It's very classic horror. It's very 70s. It features Rachel Van Helsing, the daughter of Abraham Van Helsing from the book, and like this dude named Frank Drake, and it's freaking great. I recommend it. I think it's been collected a number of times. And then also, in way later, um, in the Captain Britain and MI13 uh, series, Dracula comes back, and he's raising an army of vampires in the moon to take out over the United Kingdom. Dracula and- on the moon seems to be a motif that comes up a lot, because he lives on the moon in Dr. McNinja, too. But what we're going to discuss against 
makes perhaps our better judgment is the 2010-2011 crossover event called Curse of the Mutants. I want to start out by qualifying that this story is terrible. It is, in my opinion, the X-Men Origins Wolverine of comics. Well, so that means that not only is it spectacularly bad, but it's also kind of awesome, right? Yeah, it's so bad that it crosses over really hard into hilarious. I don't know whether or not I'd actually recommend it. On one hand, it, it is really funny. On the other hand, if you read all of the tie-ins, it's 12 or 13 issues. It's a six-month-long crossover event. So, well, we'll try to hit the good points, and we'll try to get some of the really good stuff in the as mentioned, so you can then make an informed decision over whether to dive into the curse of the mutants. Okay, so maybe we should set up the status quo, since we haven't really covered, like, the, the 2010 era in the show yet. Okay, so this is happening between Second Coming and Schism. That means there are very few remaining mutants, under 200. Nightcrawler is dead. The X-Men are still unified. Um, Wolverine and Cyclops haven't had their big epic breakup. And they're all living on Utopia, which is Asteroid M. It's in the Pacific Ocean off the coast of San Francisco. And it's at least claiming to be a sovereign nation, although no one else recognizes it as such. And we also have some characters who are significant uh, in this that haven't come up in our main coverage, right? I don't think we'd need to talk about those guys because A, their powers are never really relevant, and B... Everyone in this series is written so profoundly out of character that I think putting them in context doesn't really add much. Okay, well, we at least have to talk about Jubilee, because she is kind of a big deal in this series. She was depowered on M-Day in Decimation. She doesn't have any superpowers. You'll you'll see how she's written. It's it's fairly remarkable. To give some context, though, Jubilee was kind of the 90s version of Shadowcat. She was the young female character who was sort of the reader's point of entry into X-Men. Yeah, who Wolverine mentored. She hooked up with the X-Men while they were in Australia. The version of her on the cartoon, if you're familiar, with that is basically a merged version of her and Shadowcat narratively. We mentioned this as a crossover. Now, in our coverage of the Claremont era, crossovers haven't really come up. Right. The first one of those is going to be, I think, the Mutant Massacre, um, which isn't for a few years. So what does that mean in terms of the story and the issues? Okay, well, what it means in terms of sales is that Marvel makes a shit ton of money whenever they do one of these. What it basically means is you're going to have multiple books that would normally each have their own plot lines going in parallel, and the plot lines are going to cross over. So you have to basically, if you want the full story, read all of the issues from all of the titles. Right now, that's usually done by having a central mini-series, which is where the bulk of the story lies, that then ties into other ongoing series. This is a little different. The main ongoing series is actually X-Men number one through six. They just started renumbering. It ties into two other ongoing series, Namor and Deadpool. We're not really going to talk about those because the stuff that goes on in them isn't really that X-Men relevant. It's sort of side stories. There are also a whole bunch of one-shots that tie into it. There's a Blade one-shot. There's a Storm and Gambit one-shot. There's a couple um, X-Men versus Vampires one-shots that are collections of short stories that are similar, I think, to the the Buffy the Vampire Slayer tales. Um, Now, I do want to clarify that the X-Men book that this takes place in, so this is one of the reasons X-Men is confusing as a franchise. They keep renaming books and this one is just called x-men but it's happening at the same time as uncanny x-men which does not tie in as i think like we had a new x-men at the time this is the version that basically paired the x-men with stuff from the rest of the marvel universe so in this case vampires and what's weird about this too is that there's actually a five issue gap between the last part of the main event and what's technically the last issue of the crossovers this is x-men one through six and eleven Sure, why not? I'm looking at my outline, and what I've written here is just, what the hell is even happening in all caps? (laughs) 
which which is a sentiment you'll hear a lot. So this is set up actually in another one shot called The Death of Dracula. Short version, Dracula's son, Zerus, betrays and kills him at a big vampire enclave. If you've seen the movie The Warriors, it's basically the same beginning. Oh man, does that mean that there are vampires who are dressed as baseball players and like vampires who are on roller skates? Oh yeah, totally. There are a bunch of different sects of vampires and I assume that the baseball furies are one of them. Zerus's goal is for vampires to stop hiding in the shadows and basically jump up and take over the world. To this end, he has been working with some electrical engineers to do science and make medallions that allow them to walk around in the daylight. And I want to talk about the science thing a little bit, because science versus magic is a big vampire motif, and it's a big X-Men motif. And this is this era is X-Men at its scienciest. So this is like overlapping with X-Club, which is, is the science X-Men team. And this story examines it a little bit, but ultimately we don't really get much out of it because it just comes down to it being wildly inconsistent. Well, speaking of inconsistent and bizarre, so what's the big event that uh, sets up this whole mess of a crossover? One day, at a sidewalk cafe in San Francisco, a big dude in a gimp mask barrels into the middle of the sidewalk, strips off his clothing, and explodes. That pretty much is what happens in San Francisco every day, right? It definitely has every time I've visited. Yeah. So how is this time different? This time, Jubilee happens to be getting coffee at that same sidewalk cafe, talking about figuring out what to do with her life now that she's lost her mutant powers. She and Pixie, whom she's with, Pixie is a younger generation X-Men character. She's got wings. She does magic stuff. She's Welsh. She's adorable. Head back to the island where Cyclops somehow deduces, based solely on the fact that the dude stripped naked and then exploded... That he must be a vampire. Well, to be fair, Jubilee's been acting kind of weird in sort of vampire ways. But after she hasn't at that point. Like, at that point, all that's happened is they've come back and she's been like, yeah, he just walked out and ripped open his shirt and exploded. And Cyclops is like, oh, vampire. What? So it's not just logical inconsistencies that typifies this crossover. It's also the dialogue and uh, something that comes up very, very early here. Wolverine and Cyclops discussing it. Wolverine, hell, just when things were looking up. Al-Qaeda in San Francisco. And Cyclops responds, something tells me this isn't the usual jihad. This series is so bad. But... (laughs) But one of the myriad ways in which the series is so bad is that it is the series of just wildly inappropriate and borderline racist political analogies like blade shows up and just straight up godwin's the crossover yeah he compares dracula to hitler it's really godwin's law in action right there for now um you know after cyclops's good entirely random guess wolverine goes out to hunt some vampires and there is a panel that miles and i read these separately and we compare notes and we were iming back and forth about this and apparently we wrote down almost exactly the same thing which was just a description of this panel in all caps there is a panel in x-men one where Wolverine cuts off the head of a sexy vampire lady, and you can see her tits and her ass at the same time. I want to talk about this panel because comics industry, this is why we can't have nice things. What have you done, comics industry? Don't you listen to us at all? Come Consider on. your choices. Consider the life you have chosen for yourself. And then the issue ends with the fantastic line. We've got ourselves a Dracula problem. Well, looks like you got yourselves a Dracula problem here. I think we're going to have to tent the house because they get into the walls. And then once they get into the foundation, that's pretty much the end of it. Oh, man, I went I went to bake some cookies and I opened the flour and it was just a bunch of tiny coffins. Yep, that'll happen. That'll happen. That's why we should take care of this right away. Now, if you just sign here, here's the uh, cost. I know it seems high, but you do not want Dracula's left in here. <laughs> so moving on. If you've got a Dracula problem, there's one man who you know you need in your crossover event, and that man is Blade. 
I need Blade in almost any context. I love Blade. Blade is a wonderful character. Blade is amazing, and Blade has amazing weaponry. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So so the X-Men are fighting some vampires, and they're not doing so hot. And all of a sudden, a uh, bola, like, you know, the thing with the two weights on the end and the string, with big vampire skulls on either end, wraps around this big gargoyle vampire and hits the ground, and it's Blade. It's like bola made of vampire skulls. That's just awesome. How do you even do that? Don't vampires go dust when you kill them or evaporate? Well, I figure if anybody's going to know how to get a vampire skull out of a dead vampire, it's Blade. He Maybe they're still things. alive. Maybe he's figured out some way to extract their skulls, and they're just basically octopi now? Blade is kind of a dick. Wasn't there a, a Blade prequel sort of one-shot thing? There is. There's a one-shot Blade prequel, and it's actually really solid. The thing about this series is that the tie-ins are almost all heads and tails better than the main series, and this is no exception. It's a hard-boiled detective story of, of Blade trying to figure out who's killing off vampire hunters, which turns out to be Zerus and his buds. So so anyway, Jubilee, she is getting more and more vampy as time goes on, kind of like what we saw happen to Storm in Uncanny number 159. Like, and in both meanings of the word vampy, too. If there's one bit of vampire tradition that this story zeroes in on hard, it is the really uncomfortable sex metaphors. And I want to point out that Jubilee is a teenager at this point. Like, she's been a teenager for like 20 years, but she is a teenager. They address this early on. And there's this line, God, she's talking to Dr. Nemesis, who's using an inside voice, which I don't understand because that's really not a thing dr nemesis does she's talking about about how she's she's feeling different she says something i need i guess something i want like pure desire coursing through my veins and i'm afraid to touch the darkness but i can't stop myself okay wait a minute wait a minute i have to object here because i know what jubilee talks like and she does that does a mall baby chili fries kind of thing that's not jubilee no no voice. this is curse of the mutants jubilee and what you have to understand about curse of the mutants is that nobody in it talks like themselves. This is in a scene where Dr. Nemesis is being medically responsible and very sympathetic. Does that sound like Dr. Nemesis to you? No, not Dr. at all. Dr. Nemesis yells about nanomachines and punches shit. In that case, every voice we do from now on, it's the wrong voice, right? It's, it's the Curse of the Mutants voice. So like Curse of the Mutants Cyclops, too, who's, who's my favorite example of wild mischaracterization. And oh, we're going to get to it in issue three. I'm so excited. What's the vampire's plan in having their dude just blow up in the middle of a crowded street? We find out that Jubilee is sort of the prime target of this. It turns out that Zerus's entire evil plan is to use her as bait to lure the X-Men in. He wants to just get them to team up together. There's this hilarious panel that's him talking about his evil plans, and it's just a picture of the X-Men, and they all look totally normal, but they all have tiny, adorable fangs. Wait a minute, Wolverine already has tiny, adorable fangs. Yeah, they're the same tiny, adorable fangs, and everyone else has them too, and they've just, they all just look kind of normal and casual, and they're all wearing their usual uniform. They just have teeny fangs. They're not even, like, they're really small fangs, too. Like, I don't know if they're really even big enough to effectively do vampire stuff with. Zerus, you are no Magneto, you are no Apocalypse. Yeah, this is a terrible plan. So Cyclops decides at this point that the only real solution is to go all Castlevania 2, find Dracula's body and head, reconnect them, reanimate him. This is the point where Blade does his whole godwinning of the event, saying, what is it, like, you don't you don't bring back uh, Hitler to take out Saddam Hussein? Jesus fucking Christ. I mean, there are degrees of come on, would someone really say that? And there are degrees of, you know, someone might really say that, but do you really want to put that line in your superhero comic? And then there's this. It just keeps topping itself. It's so, oh God, this, this crossover. It's going to be okay, Rachel. We're going to get through this. We've No one calls Wolverine's wolves in it as far as I know, but that is literally the only thing it has going for it over X-Men Origins Wolverine. From here, a few different things happen, and this is where the crossover kind of splits, and this is where the good stuff comes in, because this is where the one-shots hit. Okay, so first of all, there's Namor. Namor's supposed to go get the head, and he's going to go do that in Namor number one. 
and then have a bunch of side adventures in his own series involving this ancient race of Atlantean vampires. And that's actually, it's really solid. We're not going to talk about that series, but I've read through those issues, and they're great. Uh, meanwhile, Storm and Gambit are going to go steal the body, and uh, Dr. Nemesis is going to hold down the fort uh, at the X-Men's headquarters in Utopia. Speaking of bodies, Jubilee knocks Kavita Rao over the head and goes off on to- On a jet ski. Um, she goes off on a jet ski. She do- oh, God, she does. I'd forgotten that. She goes off on a jet ski to go be an evil, sexy vampire. I want to take a second to talk about that. This crossover has some really major lady problems. Yes, it does, I both mean, in the art and the writing. Yeah, it's Paco Medina on art, and he's, he's a very good artist, but he tends to default to drawing very, very vampy, sexy women. But the writing is what bugs me more, because literally, there is no female character in this crossover who's not either a hypersexualized MacGuffin or dismissed. There's a point where Wolverine basically just like blows Storm off as being naggy and useless and it's like really this is x-men guys really? this, is, this is one of the comics with one of the better histories of gender diversity and, and female representation out there come on yeah so we're getting into the depressing bad not the funny bad which means we need to move on to x-men number three in which the x-men reanimate dracula using a machine that as far as i can tell exists specifically for reanimating dracula it is a reanimating dracula machine that they happen to have with them on utopia because they're prepared for this kind of thing yeah like it's got a little robot arm that puts his head on and it's got all these stakes lined up just in case and what this reminded me of was you know the old um, batman 60s tv show they had the movie of it and in it batman has a bat rehydration machine that he uses to rehydrate the un it's that it's that degree of ridiculously specific preparation which i love and at this point we also get to see evil sexy vampire jubilee and all i can think of like through this whole series is the community line you know jubilee is pretty young we try not to sexualize her But no, no. They blaze across that Rubicon on a jet ski. So the X-Men resurrect Dracula, sure enough. And he looks looks different this time. He's not the sort of classic um, monocled, caped dude. He's just a guy with long white hair and red armor. And he immediately propositions them. Dracula's a lover, not a biter. Dracula is delightful. I will say they're... Oh, God. (laughs) They're just going to keep on coming. It's going to be like the Dick Jokes and the Man Thing episode. Keep, Keep on coming, Dick Jokes? Yes. Continue. You worry me. (laughs) And then comes my favorite moment of the entire crossover. Cyclops is trying to explain to Dracula why he's resurrected him. There's a moment of silence, and then he just mugs straight at the reader and says, I want you to follow your heart. This is a crossover in which Cyclops entirely seriously tells Dracula to follow his heart. Like, I feel like that right there is all you really need to know about Curse of the Mutants. And this is what I'm talking about. It crosses the line from bad to kind of awesome. God, Cyclops has the best lines in this, and they're all... The guy who wrote this, just characterization, instead of reading old X-Men books, he just put a bunch of traits in a jar and pulled out random combinations of them. And so Cyclops gets lines like, No more nickel and dime. Let's crank it up. Is that your fake Cyclops voice? Sure. Awesome. The idea of these bastards partying in my town is pissing me off. Wow. This kind of reminds me of like the, the uh, fake uh, Inspector Spacetime, the American one in Community that just totally misses the point yeah, of everything. Yeah, no, he talks just like that. It's so funny. And then speaking, oh God, speaking of amazing dialogue, in issue four, Wolverine has gone to rescue Jubilee and he has himself gotten vampirized. And there's a scene in it that I swear to God is pulled straight out of a chick tract. I told you you'd thank me, Logan. 
And you were right. It took being undead to feel this alive. Hell, I'm thinking about smoking again. Nobody tells vampires how to live. We play by our own rules. All we need to do is listen to Zerus and its promised land all the way. Rachel, do you want to put on a stage show of this crossover? It'd be the greatest thing ever. Yes. Yes, I do. Okay, so anyway. The dialogue in this issue, this is the gift that keeps on giving. Another great Cyclops line, less for the actual line than for what it implies, which is, you know, Gambit called in with Intel an hour ago, mostly whispers and innuendo. And I assume he's talking about, supposed to be talking about the Intel, but what this really heavily insinuates is that Gambit basically just called and was like, so there are vamps around, Shara, but seriously, guess what I'm wearing? I can't do the, I can't do the Gambit voice at all but still um, i mean that's basically gambit so i, I kind of buy that you, you want me to send you a picture share it's gonna be a little dark and i'm not sure my my camera has a you know wide enough uh, frame if you know what i mean <laughs> so Sex from gambit would be the worst thing like literally the worst thing dot tumblr.com oh um, wolverine and jubilee are hanging out with zaris and they've both been vamped the x-men are figuring out what to do and they go and prepare to attack the vampire base This gets kind of fun. Like, there are some good ideas in this vampire fight. They're not executed very well, but they're fun ideas. So, like, a priest blessing Iceman so that he can basically generate holy water. Okay, that is just straight up awesome, and I love everything about that. That's really clever. It's not played very well, but it's clever. There is a moment where Cyclops is like, yeah, Nightcrawler would totally have approved, which, no, I really feel like he probably wouldn't have. One thing that keeps happening in this crossover is the X-Men, like, murder dozens and dozens of vampires, and they have, like, no remorse. Like, Storm and freaking Colossus is just like, whatever, quippy one-liner. Oh, man, there's even a bad Cyclops pun line in this issue about exactly that, where he's standing on the deck of Utopia, and he goes, planning is over, it's time to execute get it execute like kill it's a pun get it get it get it guys i I get it so cyclops and wolverine meet up and cyclops reveals his master plan they they posture off in a scene that i'm sure made legions of shippers punch the air but not legion who's an entirely different story and it turns out that without telling him injected uh wolverine with nanomachines that turned off his healing factor but they let him get get vampire but they can turn it back on with remote control which they do so he gets unvamped and decides that he's going to go off for revenge and a scene that I'm pretty sure is supposed to deliberately echo the uh, cutting through the Hellfire Club thing, but doesn't in any ways that are good or acceptable. Like at this point, everyone just wants the crossover to be over. Even Dracula makes a comment on panel about how bored he is. So yeah, Dracula actually shows up and confronts Zerus. Dracula is the fun part of this crossover. One of the many things that bugs me about this is the dialogue pacing is really strange. And it, it reminds me of, of dubbing the, where, where they're trying to fit the text to the mouth movements the inflection's a little bit off and the, the parsing is a little bit off but what there are that are lovely is a lot of moments of dracula saying something kind of inappropriate and then just reaction shots <laughs> which are lovely but dracula's best line hands down comes in x-men issue six which is the last issue of the main crossover and which i think sums up everything that's important about Dracula as a comic book character. So he's fighting Zerus, and Zerus is like, are you going to talk or fight? And Dracula says, if you can't talk and fight at the same time, what's the point of being Lord of the Vampires? Indeed. What is the point of being Lord of the Vampires if you can't give awesome villain speeches and then rip your jerk son's head off? Which he does. Well done, Dracula. 
Thanks, Dracula. We wish you could have done that in issue number one. We're with you, Dracula. We're on Dracula's side in this, as are the X-Men. But they are concerned that he may double-cross them. First of all, Blade storms out because they're not going to kill Dracula. Cyclops decides that what he's going to do is run the creepiest bluff of all time and tell Dracula, so we had your head and body for a couple days. What do you think we did with them? And Dracula looks at him and says, you're bluffing. And then there's literally just five panels of Cyclops staring at Dracula and Dracula gradually smirking more and more until he finally says, but with such style, I forgive you. And that's really the end of the body of it. Dracula goes off to go Drac somewhere else. The X-Men go back to X-Mening and Jubilee goes on to try to come to terms with spending the rest of her life as a vampire via what's technically the last issue of this crossover, X-Men 11, where Professor shows up to give her some really dubious wisdom. This issue, not really much happens. The only thing that I want to touch on in it is that it... He tells her a story about his old adventures predicated generally on the assumption that Africa's one big country, which really wasn't excusable in the 60s and even more so in 2011. Don't do that, Marvel. So anyway, for actual good Vampire Jubilee coming to terms with this, go read Marjorie Lou's run on X-23. Jubilee is the main character for a large chunk of it. It's fantastic. It's super good. So that's the bulk of the Curse of the Mutant storyline. It's, well, not good, as we've described. Entertaining, yes, but... No, not good. But what is surprisingly very good are the spinoffs, the tie-in issues. The creative team on uh, the main Curse of the Mutant storyline, those X-Men issues, uh, what was it? Uh... It's uh, Victor Gishler writing and Paco Medina on art. There are different creative teams for each of the spinoffs and sometimes multiple creative teams. And the first one, I think, is notable for having one of our very favorite X-Artists of all time. Yeah, yeah. So this is the Storm and Gambit one-shot. This is where Storm and Gambit go off to, as Master Thieves, steal Dracula's body from Vampire Island. It's Awesome. Let's just take a look at that sentence for a while. Steal Dracula's body from Vampire Island? That is inherently great. That is, you know, we've been talking about what what to do for an anniversary trip. That's what I want to do. I I think we should go steal Dracula's body from Vampire Island. I love this plan. I'll talk to AAA. So yeah, this is by Chuck Kim with art by Chris Piccolo, who, yeah, he's a great X-Men artist. He's probably most known for Generation X, the 90s uh, series that went on for a long time. And in particular, he just draws a terrific storm. Like, the storm in my head... When she doesn't have a mohawk, the storm in my head is drawn by Chris Piccolo. The art, it's um, it, it's very stylized. It's also, the, the layouts are great. Like, there's this scene of Storm and Gambit going underground, and it's basically one big panel with multiple iterations of them as they go around this, like, long path and, and rappel down a wall and go through a, a cave. It, it's, it's awesome. It's also got something that almost no one has addressed that solves the problem. So, you know, Storm's super claustrophobic, right? Right, right. And you would think that over 30 years and living with the world's greatest telepath, she would develop some coping mechanisms for this. And in this, she actually has. Yeah, yeah. Gambit's like, you're going to be okay in here? Your claustrophobia, and Storm interrupts him, is much better. Thank you. Charles gave me some excellent coping exercises. And they Thank just, you. They just it is it about that. damn time. Um, They also actually talk about the ethics of killing, which again is something that's really not touched on in the main series. Yeah, Storm has to basically uh, take down this shield, this uh, magical shield around Vampire Island so the other X-Men can come in and help. There's this innocent victim who's tied into powering the shield and she cannot figure out a way to take it down without killing him. Like it's one of those, if she doesn't take it down, then Gambit's going to get killed. They are going to lose their chance to stop Zerus. She does what she has to do and she's not real happy about it. And that's sort of the theme of this issue. The main series doesn't really have a theme. The one-shots do. and this Oh, one the is main a- series has a theme. And what's that theme? You've got a Dracula problem. I want you to follow your heart. <laughs> but yeah, so then the, the rest of the X-Men show up, and uh, Northstar rips off all the vampires' anti-sun medallions, allowing Dazzler to incinerate them with her light powers, as Northstar just says, go team Jacob. Man, is- you know what I want? Marvel, if you're listening, are you there, Marvel? It's me, Rachel. I want a Dazzler and Northstar limited series. I want the two of them to have adventures. I want Dazzler to be buoyant. 
and sarcastic and I want North Star to be crisp and dry. I want them to be amazing and have a really good time because they're awesome characters. They get fucked over continually in continuity. They have a great dynamic and it would be a rockin' series. So we have our second one shot, uh, Smoke and Blood. Oh man, can I talk about this one? Yeah, go for it. Okay, we've mentioned Cy Spurrier before, specifically in relation to the current X-Force title. Cy Spurrier is one of my favorite current generation X writers. This is him and Gabriel Hernandez Walta, who is a phenomenal artist. And they're doing a story about the science team X Club. So Kavita Rao, Dr. Nemesis, Madison Jeffries, Box. Um, and in this case, randomly Emma Frost, who's in, in contact with them, dealing with a bunch of the humans who've been infected by the vampire virus. It is really funny and it's really bizarre. So something you mentioned, Miles, when we were talking about this, is that Spurrier's work is really immediately identifiable. There are a lot of comics artists whose styles you can pick up on immediately, you know, people you can open a book and know. I mean, with Spurrier, you're right. Like, I, I remember opening X-Force number one and thinking, yeah, if the name hadn't been on it, I would have known who'd written this comic. Yeah, Spurrier has a, a unique authorial voice, and some people really don't dig that because, in a way, his voice takes over the voices of the characters. Like, they don't always sound or act like themselves. That can be okay. It's almost just like a uh, like a really bizarre cover of a song, but that's also a really good cover of it. Or really stylized art, where the style of the art is, is an element of the storytelling in the comic. And again, I think that's something that we tolerate much more on art than writing. I'm trying to think of other writers who do it. Spurrier is easy to pick out because it's part of how he writes text and dialogue. I think in, in terms of storytelling, and especially page-to-page -page storytelling, Grant Morrison is definitely pretty recognizable for me at this point. Yeah, and I think with Grant Morrison, it's less like the the dialogue and the writing and stuff, It's and it's more just the plot. You can A Grant Morrison plot feels like a Grant Morrison plot. It's just really out there and strange and takes it in directions you would not have predicted. We would love to hear from listeners. Actually, Claremont. God, Claremont is an obvious oh, one. Yeah, Why yeah. did we not say Claremont? But um, the writers who you can identify stylistically, who have distinct narrative voices, either in the text or in the way they plot and tell stories. Yeah, this is just a terrifically fun story. There's a lot of yelling. I've mentioned before, I love the hell out of Dr. Nemesis. He is he is one of my favorite X-Men characters. He is a character who, who yells and smashes things and does science to things aggressively. Well, let's get some examples. Like, what are some good nemesis lines in this one? I have slaughtered Nazi dinosaurs, madam. I've reverse engineered Aryan influenza, sabotaged the SS clone labs of Peru, and outplayed the cosmic commandant at quantum chess without effort. But this, it's challenging. And then later on, I refuse to give the exit codes to a glorified mosquito with electric herpes. Dr. Nemesis is delightful. And again, this is one of the things that bugs me about the main series, because he's in it a lot, and he's just kind of a doctor in the background. There are writers who are associated with specific characters who've really defined those characters' voices, and if you're not taking a cue from Cy Spurrier when you write Dr. Nemesis, you are writing Dr. Nemesis wrong. So, uh, yeah, the plot of this story is not really all that relevant. It's sort of a science versus magic thing. Nemesis having to accept that, you know, maybe magic is a real thing, but mainly it's worth it for the dialogue. It's beautiful. And also the art. Walta is, once you've seen his stuff, you'll know it every other time it comes up. It's very atypical for superhero comics. So we have uh, one more spinoff, which are, is a two-issue series called X-Men vs. Vampires, which is one of the most accurately named series I've ever seen. And it is pretty much what it says on the tin. It is X-Men, it's short stories about X-Men versus vampires. They're not all worth discussing, but there are a few that really stood out. Uh, there's one with um, Dazzler fighting disco vampires. So some of these stories feel really cramped in the space they have. This is one of them. It eventually turns out that these vampires she's fighting have been around since the 70s. They don't feed on humans. They've just been basically hanging out and keeping Disco alive. That's, I that's want noble. them to be her friends. They can be in the Dazzler North Star series. 
perfect. Um, then there's another one, uh, which is just Gambit uh, fighting a bunch of sexy vampire ladies that he meets at a bar and ends up killing them all with a motorcycle with buzzsaw arms on it. And I don't really feel like we need to know anything else about that. Like, if that concept doesn't appeal to you, don't bother reading the story because that's really what it is. It is an exquisitely self-realized piece of narrative. Um, and then we have a story with Rockslide and Armor fighting basically Moby Dick as a big vampire whale. Which and is... that again is Spurrier and Walta, and it's it's really fun. Um, but the one I actually really like is an angel story. He's chasing down this vampire who's been killing serial killers. And at this point in continuity, the Archangel persona, which is Apocalypse's horseman of death that's still inside We're going to get angel. to this when we cover um, the first X-Factor series. Archangel is still inside Warren, and he keeps sort of coming out. Like, he's this sort of bloodlusty figure inside Warren's mind. And so there's this great parallel between a vampire, an inherently evil creature who's doing good things, tracking down serial killers. Well, it's arguable whether that's good to murder murderers. And then Angel, who's this inherently good character with this evil dark persona that's very effective inside him. And I really dig it, because uh, Angel is kind of a boring character a lot of the time. But once Angel you work is in, a super boring character a lot of the time. But once you work in Archangel, he becomes fascinating, and in my opinion, a better allegory for the whole man-beast dichotomy than Wolverine. Oh, I totally disagree. I think it's a different dichotomy he's exploring. I think Wolverine is all about man versus beast, Angel is all about man as helpful versus man as, like, corrupted force of evil. Archangel isn't animalistic. He's extremely strategic. He's extremely cold. He's extremely calculating. He's Angel with all of the compassion stripped out. Now that we have pretty much covered the Draculas, I think it's time to follow our hearts into some listener questions. Okay, what's our first question? Well, the noir guy on Tumblr asks, what's your favorite crossover storyline? Not the most important one, your favorite one. There are a lot of good ones. Uh, my favorite is probably Inferno, which is from the 1980s. It's where hell literally comes to Earth, and it was a crossover before you had to like read every single issue. Basically, New Mutants, X-Factor, and X-Men at the time. And each, Excalibur. Uh, and Excalibur, that's true. Each had their own storyline of how they were dealing with the Inferno, and a lot of really big, crazy stuff happens. You're seeing the X-Men fighting all this demon-y stuff that's really not normally their wheelhouse, and some really cool character stuff comes out. Also, Ayanna Rasputin, who we'll be talking about in the next episode— it is probably the single coolest part of her story uh, in all of X-Men history. Yeah, man, I've been thinking about this one all day and failing to come up with a good answer. If I had to choose one, it would probably, probably also be Inferno. I mean, it's got everything that I like about crossovers and almost nothing that I don't. Uh, you can follow it via individual books. There's a huge amount. There are years of buildup to it. It's got Summer's Family Drama, which we all know I'm a sucker for. All of the books have just stellar creative teams at that point. That's when Walter Simonson's the main artist on X Factor. Um, and I think it's, it's dur- is it during Sienkiewicz's run on New Mutants? Uh, that I don't remember. We should look it up. Um, but it's just really, really well done and put together. There is also a place in my heart reserved for it's not a good crossover, but it is a profoundly unapologetic crossover that so perfectly encapsulates the era it's from, and that's Executioner's Song. Oh, Executioner's yeah. Song is why we drink. Executioner's Song is everything that's wrong with the 90s in one convenient pat crossover. I respect that. I don't know if I like it. I don't think I like it, but I do respect how neatly it manages to hold all of that nonsensical awfulness in one convenient package. And I'll tell you, reading that as it was coming out as a kid in the 90s, it, there were blades and pouches everywhere. It was the Dude, there were, were there, was, was that one of the ones where there were like holographic trading cards embedded in the covers or was that, am I thinking of Fatal Attractions? Yeah, the Fatal Attractions. There were trading cards that came with the issues, as I recall, though. 
I also like the Phalanx Covenant, but I think that's just because I really like Warlock, and if there's a Warlock-centric story, I will like it more than non-Warlock-centric stories. Uh, okay, so our other question... Um, oh, this is timely. This is from Arpawson from our blog, rachelandmiles.com. Given Marvel's decision to make a Guardians of the Galaxy movie, do you think the chances of the Starjammers or Brood ever being on screen have improved infinitesimally? I just assumed those two groups of characters and story arcs would be untouchable for movies, but if Rocket Raccoon is on screen, all bets are off. Oh, alas, Arpasan, I really, really wish that this meant that there was a better chance we'd get the Starjammers on screen, but we will not, and here's why not. The Starjammers are X-Men characters. They're fundamentally tied to it. They made their debut in an X-Book, which means that the rights to the Starjammers currently sit with Fox. You've seen the X-Men movies. You've seen the tone of the X-Men movies as compared to the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Guardians of the Galaxy is the closest we're ever going to get to a Starjammers movie, at least for now. I mean, maybe 20, 30 years from now, we can dream. Maybe someone will redub Guardians of the Galaxy so that everyone calls Peter Quill Chris, and I'll watch it even more then. Unfortunately, it is probably never going to happen. Although that said, with X-Men Apocalypse coming out, I mean, that's going to really turn the X franchise on its head in terms of scale, so who the hell knows? I want a Starjammers movie more than I want X-Men Apocalypse. Uh, Fox, if you're listening, do it. You should follow your heart. <laughs> all right, I think that's all the time we have for today, guys, uh, so let's, uh, let's take this out. Rachel and Miles explain the X-Men is recorded in Portland, Oregon, and produced by Bobby Roberts, who's also the co-host of the awesome Welcome to That Whole Thing, which you can check out online at welcometothatwholething.com. Check out our website at rachelandmiles.com. We have visual companion posts for each episode. Those go up on Sundays, so if you're listening at Comics Alliance, check back then. Fan art and all sorts of nonsense. If you're enjoying the show, please take a minute to check out our Patreon. You can find a link from rachelandmiles.com and to rate and review us on iTunes and Stitcher. New episodes air at comicsalliance.com every Thursday and at rachelandmiles.com, iTunes, and Stitcher on Sundays. Next time, a little bit of magic. (laughs) 